Welcome to Emil Franzing's Voices of the West, dedicated to the principle that America was better off when our TV shows featured cowboys instead of lawyers. Yes, indeed. Welcome to another edition of Emil Franzi's Voices of the West. I'm Harry Alexander in Los Angeles today. Sitting next to me is Todd Roberts. Hello. Back in Tucson, Bunker de France. I'm sitting here all by myself. Holy. <laughs> missing you guys. I'll be home Sunday. Broken hearted. I'll be home Sunday, my friend. <laughs> my name. Oh, so again, if you need anybody to pick you up. I, yeah, I, I know. T- tell somebody else, right? <laughs> A forever heart longs forever. Anyway. He's had too many beers already. Yeah, yes. uh, Just so you know, Harry, when yeah. I went to get breakfast uh, yesterday, yeah. Kathy says, where's your partner? And I uh, told him you were in. You are on assignment in Los Angeles. Yes, indeed. And boy, what an assignment it is. We are yeah. we are streaming live to uh, you today from the uh, house of uh, Joe Musso, a uh, uh, retired art person, uh, worked in art departments and, and at, all, I guess, all the studios uh, here in Los Angeles. And he also has uh, an incredible museum uh, in, in his house, but specifically upstairs, where it is, well, we're in the Western Room, which has the bar, uh, some nice <laughs> tables, yeah, uh, some nice tables and chairs, his collection of uh, Bowie knives, and uh, we're going to get into that, his collection of uh, old flintlocks, collections of movie posters, and uh, some John Wayne memorabilia, uh, as well as a couple of other friends sitting up here, uh, Davy Crockett and uh, Jim Bowie, uh, sitting over at the other table. So and Lots uh, of old Betsy's. Aren't they having beers, too? No, they're not having beers. They're just not going to say much this time around. So, Okay. Joe, welcome to the program. Thank you, Harry. We appreciate the opportunity to do to uh, do the show here uh, in, in your lovely home uh, in Los Angeles and among this incredible collection of goodies that you have amassed over the years. Now, you came from New Jersey out to California, right. and uh, that was... 1960s, you said? Yeah, 1964. As a kid, I had three loves, art, motion pictures, and history. So my whole idea was to come out to Hollywood and work in historic movies. And eventually I did do that. By the time I got here, they weren't doing that many historic movies. So I had to do everything that came along, and occasionally an historic movie or two. So, uh, But I've been at it ever since. The first film I worked on was uh, Marriage on the Rocks with Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, Deborah Carr, uh, Cesar Romero, and Nancy Sinatra. And at the time, Anne Mark was going to be in it. She wasn't. I later worked with her on another film. But uh, it was I worked for Frank Sinatra's company at Warner Brothers. Hmm. And it was called Artanis Productions, and which is Sinatra spelled backwards. Oh, wow. And uh, so, um, you know, he had a pretty good thing going at Warner Brothers until he moved over to 20th Century Fox. But uh, the um, interesting enough, the first thing I did was uh, Frank had bought a new helicopter, a Jet Ranger helicopter, and he loved the color orange. <laughs> so I had to do a design orange color schemes to go over his helicopter. And here I'm thinking to myself, hey, 
I'm trained. I got a Bachelor of Fine Arts degree. I can do architecture. I can do figures. I can do animals. I can do all kinds of stuff. But I never thought about doing uh, orange color schemes on helicopters. Uh, fortunately, uh, Frank's pilot came over and said, well, based on those past helicopters, I think Frank would like this and that. We'll paint this color orange. We'll paint this panel white. We'll trim it in black. And lo and behold, based on what his pilot told me, I did. It turns out Frank loved it. So I was kind of in. But I got to tell you that for a couple of days until Frank looked at it, I'm thinking to myself, my whole career could go into Fritz just because I didn't get the uh, orange color schemes right. And ironically, years later, um, I ended up working for, uh, not good, 10 years later, Erwin Allen, and he loved the color orange. Mm. And uh, that's the one thing that he and Frank had to, in common together, except Erwin uh, uh, didn't think too much of Frank at the time. His description was, horrible little man, terrible <laughs> little man. And it turns out that Erwin uh, um, Allen and Frank were RKO in the late 40s, and somewhere along the way, of course, uh, Howard Hughes, as we all know, bought the studio in 1948, and that was to get his movie The Outlaw released to Jane Russell because none of the other studios wanted to touch it. So he said, oh, I bought my own studio and release it on my own. So he ends up buying RKO. And um, Here's where the pretty girls come in, Bunker. Well, the pretty girls came in, but... <laughs> Supposedly he bought it because at the time it was one of the two leading studios in town, that and MGM. And but RKO had John Wayne under contract, and uh, MGM had Clark Gable. And I guess Hughes would rather make movies with John Wayne than Clark Gable, so he ended up buying RKO. And uh, along the way, though, Frank uh, was brought out to Hollywood by RKO. Then his contract was bought up by MGM, but they could loan him back to RKO to make a movie a, a movie a year. That was kind of the deal. Somewhere along the way, Frank managed to do something, say something, that upset both Louis B. Mayer at MGM and Howard Hughes at RKO. And uh, they were, um, it was a will fix Frank, so they had movies that they were filming that Frank was starring in, so they figured, well, we won't give him top bill, and we'll give him second or third ability, and we'll hold the film back for a while. Sure. So one uh, of the MGM was on the town. They gave billing with um, Gene Kelly. Uh, Gene Kelly over Frank, and uh, the one that Frank was doing at RKO was Double Dynamite, or It's Only Money, had two titles. And Irwin Allen was the first movie that he was kind of co-producing on. He was a, uh, an agent. He sold himself with the project to get a producing credit. And here, uh, and this is the one that he was doing with Frank at RKO, was with Frank at Groucho Marx and Jane Russell. Frank was the star. When the film was finally released a couple of years later, Frank got third building underneath Groucho Marx. But that but, did not sit well with him. No, it didn't sit well <laughs> with Frank. But... Whatever he did, he you know the two studio heads were upset with him. But here Erwin Allen is. Here's his first credit, and it's being held up mm. because of whatever Frank said or did. Mm -hmm. 
So, uh, in any event, uh, but uh, it's kind of ironic that they both love the color orange. That was probably the only thing that they did have in common. So, <laughs> Bunker, what you got? Well, I'm just curious because I, I know you mentioned you worked for Urban Allen, and I know you were there for 18 years, and you worked on some of the biggest uh, disaster films ever. Oh. And uh, I'd like to just hear a little bit of your Irwin Allen days. Well, yeah, what can I tell you? I worked particularly on the um, Towering Inferno. I worked for Irwin on that picture for like a year and a half. And uh, so it was uh, quite a project. And I was working for four different uh, camera crews. They had complete crews. They had their first unit, which was a dramatic unit, headed by John Gillerman, the director, uh, with his own director of photography. And then they had the action unit that Irwin took over, with his uh, own director of photography, a wholly different crew. And then we had the miniature unit, which uh, uh, L.B. Abbott, the special effects person, took over. And then we had the um, uh, helicopter unit, the San Francisco unit, which was taken over by McGilvey Freeman Films. So I was basically drawing with four different camera units. So I would have to now... My role in the industry was designing scenes and sets and doing storyboards, blocking out the shots for the producers and directors. And uh, so, in other words, uh, I have to determine whether to bring them left to right or right to left when I bring them on the screen. And then I had to follow through. If I brought them left to right, I'd have to follow through continuity or find a reason to turn them around the screen to go the opposite direction. So I would have to find out what John Kilmer was doing on the first unit, and then I would have to do the action unit based on what Gilmer was doing. I'd have to pick up the actors and stage them in the same positions that the uh, dramatic unit was. Gilmer would take it up to a certain thing. Once the fire started and the mayhem began, Irwin Allen would take over, but the actors had to be positioned in the same scenes. So I had to know which, uh, you know, where everybody was at, where everybody went, and then if John Coleman changed his mind and changed positions, would actually change everything downhill from there. So it was kind of an interesting task. I was basically running around collecting everybody's ideas and then putting them on paper. And um, it's kind of interesting working with him that way. And, uh, uh, you know, what can I tell you? It was, uh, <laughs> it was quite of an experience. So, so Joe, I have story. to ask you this uh, only because I'm sitting in the midst of it all. You have one of the best collection of Bowie knives I've ever seen. You also have one of the best collection of Kentucky rifles, otherwise known as old Betsy's. Yeah. Um, where do you? Where did you start with all that, okay. and how did you start? Did you go to an auction and you found something, or you just saw one in a film and said, "I'm going to go out and find it"? Well, as I say, when I started as a kid, I was five years old. I wanted to. I'd be a cartoonist for Walt Disney. I was drawing Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck. By the age of 10, I saw the movie King Kong, 
And I decided in my 10-year-old brain that somebody had to lay that movie out and design these sets and scenes. And I said, that's what I want to do. When I made that decision, I geared the rest of my life that I was not going to work on animated films anymore, but I was going to work on live-action films. And as I said, one of my favorite subjects was history, and particularly when I was going to art school and art college, I would take different events and scenes from history and illustrate them, knowing one day I'd come to Hollywood and want to work on those movies. So I would uh, basically, you know, be doing these different historic scenes, and I tried to get even where the shadows would be in the time of day, the sunlight. But one of my instructors that when I was going to art college said, you know, Joe, if you're going to draw this and paint this, you ought to see the original item so you can get the texture. You can see what it's like. You can see the material. You can see the, uh, the metal, the finish. So he advised me to go to different antique shows or museums to look at the original item. And so that's what I started to do. And um, um, so I was going to, and then what I noticed when I went to these shows, particularly the antique arms shows, the dealers were selling these items. And I'm saying, oh my goodness. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's just like, but going to college, you know, I was on a fixed budget, I think of $5 a week mm-hmm. and uh, uh, whatever, and, well, kind of an extra $5 for the weekend. But that was it. I didn't have any extra money. So I said, well, as soon as I start working and I get some extra money, I'm going to... Um, you know, I'm going to get one of these, one of these, one of these. At the same time, when I was a kid, I saw the Johnny White Smart Tarzan movies, and I fell in love with his knife. It was kind of a Bowie-type knife with a quick point of blade on it. And I said, gee, I want to go to Hollywood one day, and I want to try to go into the prop department. Maybe I can own his knife. <laughs> My idea was I was going to come in Hollywood and get Johnny White Smart's knife or have a copy made of the knife or Meet Johnny Weissmauer, see what the knife is. And around 1952, at that tender age of 10 again, when I saw King Kong, one of my buddies came and said, well, you think Tarzan's got a nice knife? You ought to see this Jim movie, The Iron Mistress, about Jim Bowie. You ought to see the great knife he's got. So he ended up taking me and saw The Iron Mistress at the tender age of 10, and I fell in love with Jim Bowie's knife that they had in the movie. So... I not only wanted Tarzan's knife, I wanted a Bowie knife. <laughs> and if we didn't know what Jim Bowie's actual knife looked like, I wanted it to look like the movie they did for the Iron Mistress. So I was going to come to Hollywood to get, you know, one of the side things besides working on these movies, I was going to shop around, sniff around, see if I could find these knives because I wanted to own them. I had all these dreams. Everybody thought he was crazy. Back in Byron, New Jersey, he's going to go to Hollywood, work for Warner Brothers or MGM, and own Tarzan's knife or Jim Bowie's knife. So, but lo and behold, I did. I started working at Warner Brothers for, like I say, Frank Sinatra. And the first thing I did, of course, I went down to the property department, or prop uh, shop, uh, to see um, about the Iron Mistress knife they made for the movie. 
And lo and behold, Arthur Rhodes, who made up the night for the movies, was still there. Hmm. So here I am, and uh, along the way, a few years later, I ended up acquiring uh, a whole bunch of the Knights for the Iron Mistress uh, from the Warner Brothers property park. And at the same time, I was over at uh, uh, Paramount doing the film, and they had taken over the RKO Studios, and they were kind of combining everything from both studios together. And I saw some furniture out in a big parking lot, I guess they were going to throw away. And it was a prop chest, and it was stenciled RKO on it. So I said, hmm, see that? I said, wonder what's in the drawers. Mm-hmm. Open a drawer up, and there's two, mind you, two Johnny Weissmore Tarzanites <laughs> in the drawers. As well as... The Bowie knife that John Wayne used to fight the giant squid and reap the wild wind. And I got to tell you, I looked at this. I couldn't believe what I was saying. <laughs> I have three three of these darn knives in the drawer. And it was with all this stuff piled out in the middle, which I guess they were going to haul off and throw away. Wow. So uh, fortunately at the time, I had uh, my super duper cowboy boots on which I had my pants over the boots. I didn't flash them around. But the nice thing is they had tall cuffs. So I slipped three <laughs> knives in the cuffs of my boots and walked out to the parking lot to my car, opened up to, as nonchalantly as possible, opened up my trunk of my car, put these three knives in the trunk of my car, went back to the studio, sat there at my drawing table, and I found it very difficult to work for the rest of the afternoon. I imagine <laughs> so. All I can think of, can I get out of the studio in my car without them checking my trunk and asking what these, you know, three knives oh, are? Oh. And, you know, as it turned out, um, the uh, one Tarzan knife was uh, uh, wood, painted metal. Mm-hmm. The other one was foam rubber. And then um, the John Wayne knife, was like a hollow sheet steel with a retractable blade in it. And uh, so I ended up taking them home to go along with my Iron Mistress knives. Most so excellent. Somehow, well, hey, somehow hey, hey, hey. Johnny Weissmiller and Jimbo, whoever's gone, must have said, eh, we're going to do something nice for Joe Musso. <laughs> Here Joe Musso's working for the studios, and... Working for all these major studios, major productions, and um, um, you know, and suddenly it's got some of these Bowie knives. Well, at the same time, I figured I wanted to go back to these antique arm shows again, and uh, and see what's what. And it dawned on me now when I started working at Warner Brothers, I really came out with very little money. So the whole idea was banking my whole bank account and that I was getting from the studio. And one Saturday morning, I woke up. I had a one-room apartment in Hollywood with a bathroom and another small room uh, with like a hot plate and a sink where I could wash my hands, brush my teeth, and do the dishes. And that was it. But I noticed... Uh, one thing I can afford is a newspaper, and uh, I happened to notice there was going to be a movie called Stagecoats on that night on TV. Mm-hmm. And I said, gee, 
I wish I had a TV so I could see the movie. Then I said, wait a minute. <laughs> I've been banking my whole paycheck. I got enough money in the bank to buy a TV. <laughs> so uh, I hadn't even thought of that. So I dashed down the street to a place called Ernie's Discount Center and bought myself a little TV, <laughs> hooked it up at home, and watched the movie at night. Well, nice. that was Christmas for me. Nice. Every week after that, I, was, I figured, I want to go here, I want to go there, I want to check out some of these antique arm shows or whatever. And now all of a sudden, I suddenly had the money to buy a couple of these antique Bowie knives. And we'll talk more about yeah. that. We've got to do our first commercial break here. Harry Alexander, Bunker to France, and Todd Roberts. Uh, Joe Musso is our guest here on Amo Francie's Voices of the West. And we'll be back with much more right after these important messages. Arizona, the land of cattle, copper, and cowboys. It's also the true west where a large number of westerns were filmed. For your next vacation, come out to where Wyatt Earp made a name for himself as a highly respected sheriff. Stay where Jimmy Stewart filmed Winchester 73. That would be the White Stallion Ranch. Situated in the mountains just northwest of Tucson, the White Stallion Ranch is an award-winning dude ranch with 43 guest rooms and the Hacienda. That's a five-bedroom, three-bathroom home perfect for larger families, family reunions, and girlfriend getaways. Every guest room has a private patio with views of the cactus gardens, mountains, or corrals. Generous floor plans offer sunny, comfortable rooms, but you won't want to stay in your room. Outdoor activities are plentiful at the White Stallion Ranch. Horseback riding, hiking, shooting, archery, rock climbing, e-biking, and a weekly ranch rodeo are among the numerous activities that you'll enjoy on your ranch vacation. Go Western for your next getaway. The White Stallion Ranch. Book your vacation now online at whitestallionranch.com or call 520-297-0252. Are you looking for a smart way to invest your hard-earned dollars? Look no further than Wilkinson Wealth Management. This is an investment firm that works for you based on your expectations, not what the stock market says. This is a firm that wants you as a client, not just as a customer. This is a firm that lets you design a portfolio for when you need it. It's a new name, but the same great service you've come to expect. Imus Wilkinson is now Wilkinson Wealth Management, 7411 East Tanker Verde in Tucson, 520-777-1911. Watch Old West silent movies anytime at VoicesOfTheWest.net America, let me tell you about Sergeant Greg Anderson. Served two tours in Afghanistan, Bronze Star and Purple Heart recipient, and unemployed. The unemployment rate among transitioning service members is unacceptably high, much higher than the general population. Veterans are a proven commodity. They're mature, reliable, and hardworking. They deserve a chance to get back to work after serving their country. Do you really want to honor a veteran? Hire one. Go to legion.org slash honor veterans to find out how you can help. All right, listeners, you like Westerns, right? You're darn to- I mean, you do listen to this program. So you want a chance to tell the rest of the world which Westerns you think are the best? I'm always ready to back up whatever I say. Here's how. Email us your picks for your top five Westerns. Tell us why you think those five are the best cowboy movies. You got any more you want to say on the subject? Each month, we'll pick one entry and offer you the chance to talk about your choices as a guest on our live stream and resulting podcast of the Voices of the West program. Pretty simple, right? 
We want to hear from you. We have our men scouring the valley. Email your list to bestwesterns, voices of the west at gmail.com. I guess that's all we need to hear. Stay back there, you operate. Or somebody will be stopping the last. Come on, son. This is the Voices of the West. Born on the mountaintop in Tennessee. Green estate in the land of the free. Raised in the woods so he knew every tree. Killed him a bar when he was only three. Davy, Davy Crockett. King of the wild frontiers. We're back on Amo Francis, Voices of the West. Harry Alexander, Bunker de France, and Todd Roberts. Um, I'm in Los Angeles today and tomorrow as well. And uh, uh, we're streaming the, uh, our program to you uh, live from uh, Joe Musso's house, uh, art director for many a studio, m- uh, movie memorabilia collector, and all-around nice guy. Bunker de France is in Tucson, enjoying the heat and whatever rain we're supposed to be getting there. Jim Bowie, Jim Bowie, he was a bold, adventuring man. That's coming up later. Oh, good. (laughs) I thought Davy Crockett would be good because we got Davy sitting over here. uh, Oh, yeah. Listening to the show uh, with us. So, um, Of course, I just want to share my favorite quote of Davy Crockett. Uh, you all can go to hell. I'm going to Texas. <laughs> <laughs> all well, right. I got a question for Joe here. Uh, you worked on with, or I should say, with uh, Alfred Hitchcock, who I understand is one of your favorites. But what really the story that really intrigued me was the restoration of uh, Stage 28 at Universal, and uh, the fact that you did the uh, you did a color painted uh, thing of the set with all of the people in the crew Newman, yeah. Julie Andrews, and Hitchcock were you and you, did you paint yourself in the picture as well? Of course, <laughs> <laughs> as well as the crew. Yeah, uh, it's interesting. Uh, Working with Hitchcock, uh, just, uh, uh, I guess we can get back to collecting the props, but um, like I say, I collected, started collecting the movie props, but then I started collecting the real thing and reading the studios and um, collecting different memorabilia from the studios. But I ended up collecting historic artifacts too, and one thing to it to another with helmets, uniforms, you name it, I collected it. Um, Particularly, you know, British, French, American, uh, even Mexican military during the Texas Revolution. So, yeah, sitting uh, in back of us here, and uh, back, I'm looking at it right now. There are three, four figures, five figures behind glass in a display, and each one of them is wearing uh, one of the uniforms that the Mexican soldiers wore during the time of the Alamo. Yeah. Incredible, and incredible stuff. Complete original undressed Mexican uniform, uh, excuse me, uh, from a Mexican division general with the carrying cases and everything amongst my collection. And along the way, I got one of John Wayne's buckskin outfits from the Alamo. And they're all on mannequins that look like the people they're supposed to represent. I also got uh, mannequins of uh, Jim Bowie and Davy Crockett sitting here dressed in their rigs. And... Uh, at the same time, I 
and rating the different studios and Stembridge gun rentals and all, I was able to pick out and identify some of the guns they didn't realize they have. But I have an original 1820s Flintlock rifle that Fess Parker used to play old, old Betsy in the Disney Davy Crockett series. I also got the original Kentucky rifle that Sterling Aiden used when he played Jim Bowie in The Last Command, as well as uh, several John Wayne uh, guns, two Kentucky rifles, uh, one of which John Wayne used in three films, and again, The Uprising, uh, The Fighting Kentucky, and The Alamo, which he fired in one scene. And uh, so I also had the first gun that John Wayne used uh, when he did the big trail, which has got a carved stock on it, and an 1863 Springfield. So, uh, uh, you know, with that collection, and then the various historic artifacts, I got a complete uniform from a regiment that made the charge of the Light Brigade in 1854. I got campaign dress uniforms from the French Foreign Legion original, um, starting from the 1860s up to the present day, um, and so forth, so, and so on. And also, the uniforms, the real bona fide uniforms of the uh, English military, the English army in the Zulu campaigns in South Africa, which Zulu is a film that might be one of my favorite non-Westerns of all time. I know it's Joe's, yeah. and it was my dad's. And, uh, uh, and Amos. And Amos, uh, yes. It's a, a tremendous film. And Harry and, and Bunker, uh, you would be in shock uh, being able to look at the real uniform they yeah. wore. I have the a, kepi and the pith helmet, everything. I have a officer and uh, private from the 24 South Wales Borderers you know, Rorsch Drift. And I also have an officer and sergeant uh, from the King's Dragoon Guards, an elite British Cavalry Regiment, all original uh, with the uniforms. And um, like I say, including the cooks on a canteen. So, um, you know, what can I tell you? It just That's part of the historic arms collection. I have uh, Civil War stuff. Uh, U.S. Cavalry stuff from the Civil War and afterwards, including complete uniforms and um, an original uh, seven Cavalry saddle, uh, McClellan saddle. Uh, so it kind of goes on and on and on. So <laughs> and you have another. I want to go back to the Alamo for a minute. Uh, I, I saw a picture of you. It looks like you were presenting a Bowie knife or showing a Bowie knife to Wayne. Yeah. But it looks like to me you were in a, a wardrobe. Did you possibly appear in the picture? No, I did not. That was um, on the set of the Cowboys, which I went out to do some uh, work on. And, uh, of course, uh, it was one of those things I had eh, at that time. A knife made by Randall, which kind of looked like an Iron Mistress knife. It was kind of, well, the Iron the, movie, the one made for the movie is a beautiful knife, but it wasn't made for using. It was just made for showing off, looking monumental in the camera. Yeah. But I got a, a knife from Randall in Orlando, Florida, um, which they called a Smithsonian model, 
which is similar to an iron mistress knife, but it was a using knife, a uh, Monday through Saturday using knife. And I was out yeah, with I, the Cowboys, and I, I should, Wayne, besides, people know he's into six shooters and Winchesters and all, but I also had an affinity to knives from when he did the big trail. And so I was showing uh, the knife to John Wayne, and somebody was taking some pictures, and uh, Wayne was handing it back to me, and this person said, wait, one more. So he snapped a picture of both our hands on the knife. And it, was, it was not a shot we had planned or posed for. We shot this picture. And, of course, I said, well, that's the picture I'm going to blow up and frame. Here we are. <laughs> when, you know, I'm a Bowie knife collector. And yep. uh, here I am, John Wayne and I, holding Bowie knives with yeah. the, uh, what can I say? But it, the picture was taken in 1971 at the uh, San Cristobal Ranch, 14 miles south of Santa Fe, New Mexico. Oh, so that's yeah. where that picture was taken. So, um, um, well, hey, tell us, tell us the story about how you cleared up the mystery of Jim Bowie's birthplace, because that's a great story too. Yeah. Uh, well, we can get into that. I was going to talk about Hitchcock, but we can go with Jim Bowie. I went through 500 years worth of property deed records, and I found the exact, well, I had a deed. I found, somebody found a deed of Jim Bowie's father uh, buying a property uh, in uh, what is now uh, uh, nine miles uh, uh, south of um, uh, Franklin, Kentucky, and so I said, I wonder if it's possible to backtrack the DEC he, he sold it to, bring it down to the present day to see where the property is. And so I literally did that with thousand people. I went back. I spent a week back there. Believe it or not, going through old books, property deed records, and I went up, went and traced back 200 years worth of property deed records to find the exact piece of property hmm. that Jim Bowie's fa family was living on when he was born. Wow. And because of that, prior to that, writers were putting, saying Jim Bowie was born in Tennessee, Kentucky, Georgia, Louisiana. They had him being born all over the place. Mm -hmm. Well, I settled it once and for all that he was born uh, uh, nine miles on Turner uh, Town Road uh, nine miles northwest of uh, Franklin, Kentucky, and um, uh, having settled that, it was very interesting because uh, a few years later, uh, around 1800, uh, Jim Bowie's father got antsy again and moved, and he followed Daniel Boone to Missouri. Hmm. So here's Jim Bowie. He started all life with Daniel Boone, and ended it with Davy Crockett. Wow! So, but based wow. on, based on my research, uh, the governor of Kentucky made me an honorary colonel, and in historic society, they let me do the writing on the mark, and I put a historic <laughs> marker on the site. Most excellent. Uh, during this during this search, is that when you met the Bowie descendants? I met him before, and they asked me if I could help him find his birthplace too, oh. and. Uh, I ended up, I met him a few years before, and because I was a professional commercial artist, 
I was able to restore Jim Bowie's portrait and also the family member, the portraits of the family members, and photographed them and did a lot of historic research on them. And I ended up doing an article for uh, uh, the Texas State Historic Association's most prestigious magazine, the Southwestern Historic Quarterly, on uh, Jim Bowie's portrait and that of his brother and the rest of the family members for their magazine, a rather in-depth article, based on my research through the years. Hmm. And it's been ongoing ever since. And I'm basically, I didn't think I can do it, but I'm trying to at least in the last few years, you know, I almost got a day-by-day itinerary of what Jim Bowie did, particularly in the last years of his life. Hmm. I'm a little sketchy on the early years, yeah. but in the last years of his life, it's just amazing. And it kind of scares me, too, that I can find the research, and it's still there. But I'm making it happen. I'm not sure when this book is coming out, but I'm going to say it's going to, I think, impress a wow a lot of people. And we'll have you on and, the show, back on the show when that comes out. we <laughs> ended up discovering another portrait of Jim Bowie. Wow. That, so there's a second portrait that turned up, so, uh, which is very interesting. So I still got more portrait articles to write. For. Yeah. All right, we got to do our next commercial break here on Emil Franzi's Voices of the West. Harry Alexander, Bunker de France, and Todd Roberts with you. Our guest is Joe Musso. We'll be back with much more after this. Can you even imagine switching back to pen and paper to run your business? Every year, we become more and more dependent upon our technology. If your network is not set up properly, you're just one click or one email away from losing data critical to your operation. Arizona Computer Guru offers a host of services to prevent and protect you from disaster. From online backup services to email filtering to fully managed network services, Arizona Computer Guru is here to keep your network secure, your data safe, and your budget in the black. To schedule your free consultation, call 304-8300. The Tucson Trap Ski Club dates from 1948 and is now at 7800 West Old Ajo Highway. The club owns 80 acres and leases 300 more from Pima County that supports 50 trap fields, 15 skeet fields, two five-stand fields, two sporting plays courses with 12 stations each, a 9,000-square-foot clubhouse, 200 full-service RV hookups for members, and free Wi-Fi. This expansive facility gives enough room to host major national and international events annually, bringing thousands of people to the community. Check it out at TucsonTrapAndSkeet.com. You've got some Cattle you want rustled, but don't have enough henchmen of your own to do the job. Little lady up the road a piece won't strike a deal with you about water rights. You out there! Come one step near and old Bess here will spit right in your eye. So you need to strike your own deal, but you need the right henchman to do the job. The stage is hauling a Wells Fargo box loaded with gold. You've got the perfect spot to liberate that gold, but like henchmen to pull off the job. What to do? You better start packing a handgun. Call Red a Hench. We're a bad guy rental agency. We provide you with enough scruffy henchmen to tackle any job with specific directions. Just listen to what Red a Hench users have to say. Well, you know, when I joined Red a Hench, I was trained by Bud Osborne, Charlie King, and some of the best head henches there ever was. And I'm going to guarantee you that you cannot hench without the proper henches around you. And that's just a gentle hench. When you need sheer numbers of henchmen, call us. We specialize in stage holdups, water right disputes, squatter troubles, cattle rustling, and much more. Our rent henchmen may not be able to think their way out of a paper bag, but they sure can follow directions, and they won't sing to the law about you if they get caught. See our ad in the Saturday Evening Post or Harper's Weekly. 
hey, not only that, when you're in the Long Branch and you want to go next door to Doc's to get that bullet out of your shoulder, get a Renahance to sit there on your place and keep your whiskey warm while you're gone. Renahance, when you need bad guys to do bad guy stuff so you can keep your hands clean. You let me do the work. Hi, I'm Wyatt McRae, grandson of Joel McRae, and you're listening to Voices of the West. Francis Voices of the West, Harry Alexander, Bunker to France, Todd Roberts, and our guest is Joe Musso, art director for numerous studios here in Hollywood, collector of uh, movie memorabilia, as well as tons of historical stuff. I mean, it's just amazing what this man has accomplished in his career, as well as what he has collected. Uh, this is my second time here, and I, I, I it's like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> like just wow. Oh, hey Joe. Yeah. When 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 this is all over, make sure you frisk Harry and Todd, especially Todd. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He knows all about us. <laughs> uh, uh. I got. I, I, it is rumored. It is rumored that uh, you also have an interest in Mangus, Colorado. Yes, that that's true? very true. Uh, it seems like growing up, I don't know where it came from, but. Uh, once I discovered the historic Jim Bowie, I started doing a lot of research uh, related to the period. And somewhere along the way, uh, my father had to go to Tucson, Arizona for his health in 1953, the following year after I did the I saw the movie The Iron Mistress. So besides this left for Bowie knives, I had this... Uh, uh, I, you know, I had this kind of interest um, in uh, a film I saw years before, Fort Apache, and now all of a sudden I'm out in Tucson, and um, near where the real Fort Apache is and everything, and so I started, along the way, I was very well read, started reading about the Apaches, and here I am, and when I saw the movie The Iron Mistress, I saw it was based on the book. So I had to get a copy of the book. So now I'm looking at reading about Jim Bowie. But along the way, when I started reading about Apaches, I don't know what happened, but I started reading about, uh, the, you know, besides Cochise and Geronimo, um, the Apache chief in Mangus, Colorado. And somehow he stuck with me. And I said, you know, this is really a story to be told on film. And years later... I'm still thinking it's a story to be told on film, much more elaborate than the one that uh, they filmed back in 1956, uh, 57 War Drums with Lex Parker. And um, I think it's still a story to be told. And on my uh, days off, when I was particularly when I didn't get too many days off work with Alan, Irwin Allen, but when I did, because uh, I was like an officer in his company, I would actually go to uh, back to Arizona and go to Apache Pass and go to the different historic sites. I'd um, line up somebody to uh, take me down. I'd go to uh, Sonora and I'd risk me down there where some of the battles were fought and look at the battle sites. 
And you know, interesting, some of the places it was gone, there was not too much development in the past 100 years or so. A lot of it's still there, and particularly when you go to Apache Pass, you're going to kind of hike in, and there's not really too much there. And of course, afterwards, on the other side of the pass, they built Fort Bowie, so there's a lot of historic things. So here I am, I got two research uh, units going on in my life, one on Jim Bowie and the other one on Mangus, Colorado. And to this day, I still got research, and besides Bowie, I'm still doing some stuff on Mangus, Colorado. I'd like to see a movie made on his life. I think, again, it's a story that should be told, could be told, and um, visually, filmmaking-wise, I feel like I know how to play this scene or that scene or where to do or how to block this and how to block that. Having worked with all these leading directors, and one of the things that people brought up we didn't get into, but yes, I did work for Alfred Hitchcock, and along with Hitchcock, I was very amazed about, hey, he's hiring me, I'm doing blocking for him, but I'm very amazed the way he laid things out, as well as like when I worked with Clint Eastwood years later, he's saying, okay, Joe, block it out, show me, and then we'll do this and we'll do that. And I'm kind of, um, you know, in awe of the fact that uh, both Hitchcock and um, Clint Eastwood were thought enough of my blocking to continue using me. And I ended up working on eight months for Alfred Hitchcock on the torn curtain. And it's kind of interesting because I said to myself that, uh, gee, you know, when it finally came out, I didn't think it was that good a Hitchcock movie. Looking at it today, I'm saying, well, even not so good Hitchcock is better than a lot of... <laughs> no Hitchcock. No Hitchcock. And I'm looking at myself and saying, that's not a bad movie. Yeah. But I'm looking at all the problems we had in the film and the ones we solved. I... Uh, you brought up the fact that they used the uh, Phantom of the Opera stage, uh, stage 28 at Universal. And um, again, um, Universal, the hierarchy said, yes, we can use the Phantom stage, except that we had to restore all the moldings, which were only plaster pirates and they were falling off the balconies and everything, and restore it the way that it looked like for the Phantom of the Opera movie. We couldn't just go do our own thing. Mm -hmm. So the question is, where no drawings of it existed. Well, along with my movie collection of everything else, I had a bunch of stills from the movie, the Juan Chani movie, The Phantom of the Opera, of the Phantom stage with the opera stage with all the balconies and everything mm. in sharp 8 by 10 prints. Wow. So all of a sudden, my collection is now being used by mm -hmm. this company in the art department and uh, and all the, the set designers are all drawing up all the trim and uh, you know wow. uh, uh, you know that goes on the balconies from all my research and um, uh, my official title in the industry is a production illustrator I illustrate the production mm -hmm. so here I am doing color storyboards of this stuff and they're using the stuff to <laughs> do all their drawings. And Hitchcock is really very, a very happy camper because we're making it happen, and the studio heads are loving it. Mm. And um, 
used to like to watch me draw or paint. And uh, uh, while I was working for him, we had like three weeks of torrential rains, which we didn't normally have, wouldn't stop. And Hitchcock had this very elaborate bungalow on a universal lot, and then the roof started leaking. And so I had to position my drawing table in between the leaks so I could draw and a splash of water. I wouldn't hit the drawing table on my drawing and mess it up. And so here I am positioning a drawing table, cattywampus, around, not where it should be, watching it. Next thing you know, I got Hitchcock standing over my shoulder. He positioned himself between the leaks to watch me paint. So it was kind of very interesting working with him. But one of the things that Hitchcock did do, and I must say, I was introduced to Paul Newman twice. First time by Alfred Hitchcock, and the second time years later by Irwin Allen. So that's not such a bad no. deal. But Hitchcock, like Irwin Allen years later, he liked his family to be together. When you worked for him, you were a family. Yeah. And you worked in his office, had this long office, and one end was his office, the other far end was uh, split in half. One half was the art department, the other half was the editorial department. And in between were offices of his writers, his assistant directors, his director of photography, even had his own projection room in his office. And he loved to walk up and down that hall seeing what everybody's doing because he was very hands-on. And I would do this, do that. And I was always curious what I was up to. And uh, uh, But uh, along the way, it was uh, he wanted a film. There was a chase sequence through this museum in East Berlin. And uh, we had a picture, a photograph of the museum and photographs of the interior before the Russian government closed it off. And um, so doing the exterior was no problem because they had what they call a map painting. They would film the live action in front of whatever, mm-hmm. and then they would do a painting, superimpose a mm-hmm. painting over it. So in this case, they had a parking lot, Paul Newman walked down, they put a big doorway up and filmed that, then over that, the mat artist, which was Al Whitlock, did this mat, a painting of the whole exterior of the museum. So when you put the two pieces of film together, it, doesn't, yeah. it looks like Hitchcock oh, is walking God. in to this uh, art wow. museum. Wow. And um, uh, so that wasn't, that was okay. But now Ru- Newman read the script. Now he's supposed to be in chase by a, um, uh, the security, uh, uh, um, guard, guard that was mm-hmm. assigned to him, mm-hmm. Gromek or whatever. And uh, uh, so wherever Newman went, it had to be filmed twice mm. because the security um, uh, mm. person that he was assigned to was supposed to follow him, yeah. not let him out of his sight. Newman's trying to get away from him, of course. <laughs> so Newman got the idea of supposedly running through the museum and losing him in the museum, um, which he thinks he does, but he doesn't. But in any event, we had to have sequences of Newman running through the museum. But, of course, we couldn't carry a camera crew in East Berlin to film the museum. 
So what do we do? We read out these shots of Newman going through an area. We backed the wall up with something, and then Al Whitlock would do a map painting wow. of the rest of the wall with all the artwork. And there was one high shot that when you go in, the um, uh, it's a down shot looking down. You see all the marble floors. You see the columns going away and down below. You see Newman running across this elaborate marble floor, mm. trying to get away. Well, now Newman read the script. Now he's expecting to go in the sound stage to see this phenomenal museum set. <laughs> he walks in the sound stage, and all he's got is a camera crew up in the rafters, a strip of marble paper across the middle of the floor, and Hitchcock is with him. Oh, boy. And Hitchcock. Um, <laughs> says to him, he looks at Hitchcock like, what is this? And Hitchcock says, walk fast. So Newman kind of kind of stretched it out. He said, what's my motivation from walking down this uh, strip of paper? How about you want to get paid? Yeah, right. And, no, Hitchcock said, he says, well, if you don't stay on this strip of paper, you're going to disappear under the mat and nobody is ever going to be able to see you in this shot. Oh, it's like, I want to tell you, don't, don't mess around, you know. So, um, he was to stay, I guess, Hitchcock, Newman thought Hitchcock was a bit stuffy, but Hitchcock had a way he saw what he wanted to yeah. see. And later on in the movie, there's a sequence in there where the security uh, guard corners uh, Newman in a farmhouse and so they have a fight scene, and uh, Hitchcock wanted to show how difficult it was to kill somebody. So it's one of those things where Newman's fighting with the guy, wants him to fall over, and then the farmer's wife and Newman kind of drag the security chief over to the oven, stick his head in the oven, you know, fry him. And now Newman, being Newman, being a, he wanted to give him like a, John Wayne Haymaker and knock him out. And Hitchcock said, you're a scientist. You know, it's not, uh, you know, you're, you're not supposed to, you know, you're not able to do this kind of stuff. Right. And um, it was one of those things that they, they shot this sequence, I guess it was about a week, but it was like Newman was kind of fighting him all the way. He wanted to just haul off and sock him in. Hitchcock wouldn't let him do it. All right, we got to do our final break here. Uh, Joe Musso is our guest here on Amal Franzi's Voices of the West with Harry Alexander, Bunker de France, and Todd Roberts. We'll be back with much more right after this. Arizona, the land of cattle, copper, and cowboys. It's also the true West, where a large number of Westerns were filmed. For your next vacation, come out to where Wyatt Earp made a name for himself as a highly respected sheriff. Stay where Jimmy Stewart filmed Winchester 73. That would be the White Stallion Ranch. Situated in the mountains just northwest of Tucson, the White Stallion Ranch is an award-winning dude ranch with 43 guest rooms and the Hacienda. That's a five-bedroom, three-bathroom home, perfect for larger families, family reunions, and girlfriend getaways. Every guest room has a private patio with views of the cactus gardens, mountains, or corrals. Generous floor plans offer sunny, comfortable rooms, but you won't want to stay in your room. Outdoor activities 
activities are plentiful at the White Stallion Ranch. Horseback riding, hiking, shooting, archery, rock climbing, e-biking, and a weekly ranch rodeo are among the numerous activities that you'll enjoy on your ranch vacation. Go Western for your next getaway. The White Stallion Ranch. Book your vacation now online at whitestallionranch.com or call 520-297-0252. Are you looking for a smart way to invest your hard-earned dollars? Look no further than Wilkinson Wealth Management. This is an investment firm that works for you based on your expectations, not what the stock market says. This is a firm that wants you as a client, not just as a customer. This is a firm that lets you design a portfolio for when you need it. It's a new name, but the same great service you've come to expect. I, Miss Wilkinson, is now Wilkinson Wealth Management. 7411 East Tank Verde in Tucson. 520-777-1911. Read classic Western comics anytime at VoicesOfTheWest.net. Hello, I'm Mr. Red. No doubt you've heard about rescue groups for dogs and cats. But did you know there's a rescue group for horses? That's right, it's called Horse It Around Rescue. Founders Steve Boyce and Teresa Worrell are helping out all those equine victims of neglect and cruelty by giving them a place to restore their health and wellness. And Horse It Around provides a nurturing and natural environment where horses can be horses, so they can be adopted out into forever homes. More than 120 horses, mules, and donkeys have been adopted out, but like everything else, it costs money to run the project. Horse It Around is a 501c3 nonprofit located in Southeast Arizona. Your tax-deductible donations to Horse It Around will go a long way so those horses can be horses. Check out the website, horseitaroundrescue.org. Make a difference in a horse's life. That's horseitaroundrescue.org. As we recognize the service of America's men and women in uniform, let's also honor the families who sacrifice so much every day. Military families endure frequent deployments and separations. They carry on while their loved ones are sent into harm's way and wait patiently for their safe return. If you really want to honor a veteran, look for ways to support their families and thank them for their sacrifices. Go to legion.org slash honor veterans to find out how you can help. All right, listeners, you like Westerns, right? You're darn to... I mean, you do listen to this program. So you want a chance to tell the rest of the world which Westerns you think are the best? I'm always ready to back up whatever I say. Here's how. Email us your picks for your top five Westerns. Tell us why you think those five are the best cowboy movies. You got any more you want to say on the subject? Each month, we'll pick one entry and offer you the chance to talk about your choices as a guest on our live stream and resulting podcast of the Voices of the West program. Pretty simple, right? We want to hear from you. We have our men scouring the valley. Email your list to bestwesterns, voicesofthewest at gmail.com. I guess that's all we need to hear. Alex, you fellas come riding here making accusations. You're strangers to me. I don't see why I should take your word against Sharkies. Yeah, how do we know they didn't pull the murder and robbery themselves? So that's it. That's why you're so darn cocky. You think it's your three against one that you... You can't get away with that, Glasgow. We don't bluff that easy. This is the Voices of the West. Jimbo-wee, Jimbo-wee, he was a bold adventurer man. Jimbo-wee, Jimbo-wee, battled for life with a powerful hand. His blade was tempered and so was he. Indestructible steel was he. Jimbo-wee, Jimbo-wee, he 
fighter, a fearless and mighty adventuring man. We're back on Emil Franzi's Voices of the West. Harry Alexander, Bunker de France, and Todd Roberts. Our guest, Joe Musso. We are almost out of time, but, you know, we're just going to have to extend it a little bit here because... There's an item in yeah. Uh, yeah there's an item in uh, the the museum upstairs here that uh, is just incredible. It is uh, the the uh, the rifle that John Wayne had in the movie Stagecoach. Joe, talk about that. Yeah, it's a large group Winchester, 1892 Winchester, and um, I didn't realize it. All I knew, uh, you know, it's John one of John Wayne's guns. And uh, it came around uh, 2000, the NRA came to me. They wanted to put an exhibition together for their uh, museum in Fairfax, Virginia, uh, Real Guns for Real Heroes, R-E-E-L to R-E-A-L. And uh, uh, they came to me, and amongst many of the items they wanted to borrow, which was a few, including the Tarzan knives, they wanted to, they wanted to know if I wanted to loan them to Winchester, and I said sure. But I knew that uh, you know Michael Wayne at Batchak had a large Winchester, and I knew several other places where they were at also at Stembridge. And I'm thinking to myself, well, they come to me, and um, I figured a while back. Uh, Michael and I, uh, uh, you know, became very good friends at the end. But um, in the beginning, it was a little weird, and he questioned uh, what I had. So things were good afterwards, but I I told the people from the NRA, I said, it's fine with me, but just ask Michael if it's okay with him, because I didn't want to do anything that, you know, would upset him or go like sure. on over his back or anything, because right. I knew that they had one over there at Bad Jack, and um, I said, and I was rather curious as to why they're asking me. Well, I didn't realize it, but they must have gone to Michael. I don't know. Noticed them. Uh, asked Michael, because one of the things that came back to me is they wanted to know the serial numbers of my gun, and I told him. And they came back to me, and Michael said, does Joe realize that he has got one of the Winchesters that my father used in Stagecoach? Mm, wow. And they came back and said, and they asked me, I said, no, I didn't realize that. I said, John Wayne didn't tell me that. You know, it's just, I'm not sure he knew it. Yeah. But I realized it. But apparently... Uh, uh, John Wayne kept all the daily costumes from the movie. He kind of saved a lot of everything, which is kind of wonderful. I'm glad he did. Mm-hmm. But on the call sheets, it would list the different guns that they were borrowing from Stembridge gun rentals mm-hmm. that had to be returned. The call sheets would show everybody who's working that day and the props and all. And so apparently my serial number was on that call sheet list. And uh, uh, prior to that, I noticed on one of the stills of Wayne publicity shot that the grain is a little severe on the stock, and it seems severe in the photo uh, on the gun itself. And I'm I say the thing is possible. And a buddy of mine said, "Joe, don't even think that. Don't even <laughs> think." And here it is. It's the one in this publicity still. And 
of course, Michael okayed everything, but uh, the gun went on display there, and he actually listed as one of the stagecoach guns, and uh, Michael was going to give me a letter uh, on it, and we were going to have dinner, whatever, get together, and but before that happened, he died, uh, unfortunately. So the NRA went ahead and gave me their letter based on their conversation with him that he said it was one of the stagecoach guns. Naturally, we get the call sheet, that'd be fine, but, uh, and uh, so and it's, it's rather interesting that Wayne was that hands-on. And he was very knowledgeable. Yeah. One of the first things I did when I met Wayne, I asked him of all the silly, all the questions I could ask him, or say to him, or things like this. I asked him, here I am, you're with the big man, you're with the big, what are you going to say? I asked him, who played Geronimo in Ford Apache? And Wayne just busted out laughing. He said, well, that was son on many mules. And he got the biggest kick in the world of that. You know, you know you're doing it? I know, well, sit down. You know, it's like, uh, and that, but that was the Duke. I mean, he came right out with it. Didn't miss a beat. Buddy. That was son on many mules. And years later, this fellow Michael Blake is thinking about doing a book on the Calvary Trilogy. Right. And I said to Michael, I said, one of the things you got to tell everybody is, according to John Wayne, <laughs> son of many mules played Geronimo in Fort Apache. Because there's no listing for him right, there. Right. And I look at this great face. He's the greatest looking Geronimo on film. And I'm looking at it, and, uh, and apparently he's in Shawario Ribbon. Michael was trying to show him in Shawario Ribbon. He's just listed as Many Mule's son. Oh. So I don't know if you should go with Many Mule's son or Son of Many Mule's. I think Son of Many Mule's I probably. I say exactly the way John Wayne said <laughs> yeah. it. I got to you know, right. never forget that. On that note, we got to call it here. Uh, Joe Musso, thank you so much for allowing us the opportunity to uh, stream our show from your home. My your, fa- your fantastic museum here. <laughs> And uh, by the way, where is the gift shop located? <laughs> this is everything I, I want to sell at the moment. <laughs> this gift shop I want is a the t-shirt. most unusual ever. Yeah, and I've been in a lot of them because this gift shop has beer. Yeah, right. We uh, yeah, we need t-shirts. <laughs> I want a t-shirt. There oh. you go. Save All your right. money. I got rubber iron mistress knives for sale. There you go. All right. <laughs> Next time we get together on Animal Frenzy's Voices of the West, I have no idea what we're doing, but we're going to be doing it. So until then, yeah. Bunker. 78, 79, 80 O's Risco. All righty. So long, everybody. Thanks for listening. <laughs>